Lord, we do seek you through your word as we continue on the journey, continue doing the work of being your people and therefore being your gospel presence in the gospel deficient areas that you call us to. Lord, open your scriptures to our understanding. Open our hearts to your word. By your spirit we pray. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Who can name that great novel? Tale of Two Cities, that's right. Charles Dickens' The Great Tale of Two Cities. What an opening sentence. Not just because that was one sentence. I just read, I kept looking for where I should stop. And, you know, it's at the period. That was one sentence. But what an astute opening sentence. What a timeless opening to a story. Dickens was, of course, writing about uh, the period uh, of time just before the French Revolution and the Jacobin uh, reign of terror in France and England, respectively. But when, he when we turn our attention to our own day, those words still seem to ring true. And interestingly enough, when we turn our attention to Acts chapter 17, they fit equally well there. Because the passage before us in Acts 17 really is the tale of two cities, right? We encounter two different cities that Paul goes to in this chapter. Two different specific gospel deficient locales where St. Paul and his companions take the gospel presence of Jesus. And we read of two very different reactions. So if you have your Bible, you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Because we read of an age, as well as a method for reaching it, that are so much, in many ways, like our own, and as effective in reaching our own as to be useful in their superlative degree of comparison, to use Dickens' words. As we enter chapter 17 of Acts, here Paul and his companions continue on their journey into the Greek peninsula, to modern-day Thessaloniki, or Thessalonica, as it was known then. And we read of Paul keeping with his usual MO, his usual method, going to the Jewish synagogue first and foremost. So we read in verse 1, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. First, 
Notice how Paul goes to the most likely people who will receive his message. He doesn't get up in the middle of town and set up a milk crate and start shouting at people in the square, right? He goes to the one place in town where he will be received as one of their own. A visiting Jewish rabbi, as a matter of fact. They'll be excited to see him. Of course, they're going to invite him to open up the scriptures to them. This reminds me of the young life dictum, you have to earn the right to be heard. You have to earn the right to be heard. In the young life ministry, in their way of thinking, you can't just go in and start shoving Jesus down the throats of high school kids until they've gotten to know you and they've come to trust you. And until they trust you, they will not be willing to trust the truth that you so desperately want to share with them. Paul goes first to the people who will immediately have a high level of trust, who will have regard for what he has to say. When we talk about being Jesus' gospel presence in the gospel deficient areas around us, I'm not talking about getting out there and going door to door or hitting Old Town with your Bible in hand to thump it hard. I'm talking about praying for and being open to the spiritual conversation with the people, you know, the family you connected with at the pool this summer, or the woman who works in the cubicle next to yours with whom you talk about your, your kids and your weekend, or the guy at the gym you see every time you're there and who laughs at all your jokes. Most of us aren't called to bring Jesus into contexts that are completely foreign to us. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how my first vision for ministry uh, in college was to go to a completely unreached people group in southern Sudan. Interestingly enough, I actually heard the story years later about how that people group had come to be introduced to the gospel. Do you know how it happened? During the uh, civil war, the internal conflict, and the uh, ethnic cleansing that was going on in South Sudan, by the way, one of those reasons that God made it clear that I wasn't supposed to go there, the State Department said I couldn't, right? Anyway, during that period of time, some folks fled to uh, some aid camps, one of which that was administered by the Christian organization World Vision. And while there, a family came to trust in Jesus. And when they were given the green light to go back to their home area, they took Jesus with them to introduce him to the Gima people of southern Sudan. Most of us aren't called to bring Jesus into completely foreign contexts. We have to understand and trust that he's got us right where he wants us. There are already people in our immediate sphere that we can be that gospel presence too. Now, last week in our formation hour, someone made a very honest observation. They said, I guess that means I need to make space to have connections with people outside the church. And that is absolutely right. Traditionally, as a parish, we've resisted offering too many programs because our philosophy of mission has been predicated on having that kind of space in your life. So how do you get started if all your friends and family are believers who are plugged into a local church body? It's a good question. Start how Paul started. 
Where are the likely places to make those kinds of connections? Who are the people that the Lord might potentially have placed right in my track? And then simply begin praying. When we first moved to Fort Collins, I actually got out a piece of graph paper and I made a map of my cul-de-sac. And to begin with, it was just a bunch of little squares on the cul-de-sac because I didn't know anybody. But I started praying for each of those households that it represented. And as I got to know some of my neighbors and meet them and learn their names, I would actually write their names underneath those squares so that I could pray for them by name. Do you know, while I won't claim that it led to, you know, some sort of wildly successful ministry in my neighborhood, we've moved twice since then, and we still are in contact with one of those families. And in fact, they even came to one of our Easter Sunday services once and heard the gospel clearly presented. And later they got plugged into another church in our area. But it all started with being open to who the Lord had placed us near and just praying for them. Well, second, notice once again St. Paul's message because it's all about Jesus. We don't know which scriptures he reasoned with these Jews from. The text doesn't say, but that's kind of the point. It doesn't matter which of the Old Testament scriptures he took up and reasoned with them from. They all point to Jesus. It could have been any of them. From any passage, you can point to God's plan for the redemption of all things through our Lord Jesus. Bear that in mind whenever you are reading the scripture. How does this text point me to Jesus? Or conversely, especially when you get to those you know, hard, perplexing texts, say, from the Old Testament, how does Jesus help me understand this text? How does Jesus unlock what this text is saying? So third, of course, we read of the mixed response to Paul's preaching. In verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. On the one hand, three Saturdays of preaching and Paul's formed a core team for his church plant in Thessalonica. A core team comprised of Jews, Greeks, and including some of the social elites of the city, which is what it means by some of the leading women. And things seem to be going pretty well until some jealous Jews start stirring up trouble. Now here, understand this category of the Jews... Of course, it doesn't mean all of the Jews, because as we just saw, some of them were actually following Paul. Some of them had put their faith in Jesus and were a part of the church. But just as St. John, himself a Jew, begins referring to the opposition to Jesus as the Jews in his gospel, here Luke borrows that same category to indicate those among the Jews who stood in opposition to the message of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the Church of Jesus Christ has a rather checkered past when it comes to our interactions with the Jewish people. On the one hand, all the way back to the Middle Ages and frankly reinforced by some strands of the Continental Reformation, 
some within the church adopted a rather anti-Semitic position toward the Jews, essentially condemning them all because of the actions of some of their community in condemning the Christ and his church. But on the other hand, especially in the 19th and 20th century America, you have some that got on this bandwagon of championing Israel and the Jewish people because they were somehow accepted carte blanche as God's chosen people. And both are actually misguided. To reject a whole people because a handful of them rejected Christ is, of course, categorically unfair. And at the same time, to champion those same people because they held a specific place in the plan of God is categorically unbiblical. God's acceptance or rejection of the Jews is based solely on the same criteria as his acceptance of any other person or race or nation. Namely, their personal response to the message and lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus said he came into the world not to, esta- uh, not to uh, abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That means he is the fulfillment of what it means to be God's elect, chosen, holy people. He is the new temple, not made by hands. He is the new Jerusalem, our happy home. So all those who are in him, Jew and non-Jew, find the promises of the scriptures, yes and amen. The Jews as a whole people cannot be put into one category or another. Some, like St. Paul, St. Paul himself, and these who followed him are chosen in Christ. Others, like these we read about who rejected Jesus and his apostle Paul, are not chosen because they are not in Christ. Both are right here in the book of Acts. These Jews that Luke calls out, the ones who stir up trouble for Paul, they use the same tactics that were pulled all the way back during the Passion of the Christ. Form a mob, you know, kind of get groupthink stirred up, and then go out, make havoc, and then blame it on the believers, right? Blame it on the Christians. The situation was bad enough that the believers asked Paul to leave in order to let things die down. Now, spoiler alert, that is not going to be the end of the trouble with the Jews. But the but this text says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. And that sends us to the second city. Not Chicago, by the way. The second city, Berea. Immediately, Luke indicates that things will be very different here. He tells us, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now these Bereans have been held up as exemplars from the very earliest days of the church. Even today, I can think of three different churches that I know of that are called Berean Bible Church. The Jewish believers of Berea commend themselves by their example of taking everything that was said to them and rather than resisting it, as those in Thessalonica had done, 
or frankly, even rather than blindly accepting what Paul was preaching, they listened intently and they studied the scriptures for themselves intently and weighed, is this really true? And many of them concluded after careful study, yes, this really is true. And they came to faith. Would that more of us today were like the Bereans, searching the scriptures daily. In this information-saturated age, it is easy to be swayed by the loudest voices or, conversely, to just take up the uh, voices that are opposing the loudest voices. But that doesn't necessarily make either of those voices right, does it? Rather, whatever we hear from political rhetoric to religious-sounding self-help to literature, even interpretations of history, all of it needs to be filtered to ensure that it is really true. And for the follower of Jesus, the only lens that works for that filtering work is the lens of Jesus. And the only thing that points to him, as we've already seen, is the scriptures. People of God, we are not nearly as biblically literate as our forebears were. Even in that quote from Dickens, he makes allusion to biblical ideas and themes that are frankly lost on the contemporary reader that has no knowledge of the storyline of scripture. In fact, I was having a conversation years ago with a, a woman who teaches literature. And she told me, she always began her course by teaching something of the Bible, even in the public schools, because, she noted to her students, you can't grasp half the literary allusions of the great works without knowing what they're alluding to, which, by the way, is the Bible. It's true. Western culture was once shaped by biblical literature. All the great authors knew much more of the scriptures, as did their original audiences, than today. This is no more. In this day and age, you can literally meet native-born Americans in this city who can't tell you even what the meaning, the, the, the reason behind Christmas is. How, then, can they know anything else? You think I exaggerate, but I've met them. So for those of us who claim to follow after Jesus, we are in deep trouble if we are not well-versed in what Jesus actually said and actually did and what the rest of the scripture says as it points to him. Because when we lose familiarity with primary sources, we're at the mercy of those who would interpret those sources for us, right? And as a casual foray into the world of what Google serves up when you inquire about any so-called Christian position or belief on just about anything, it'll demonstrate to you that a variety of opinions is available. How then will we know whose opinion is valid if we're not knowledgeable about the text they can't claim to be interpreting for us? Now, friends, I can sympathize. I grew up in a very strong evangelical culture that said, read your Bible every day and pray every day. That's the way to honor God. And I can tell you that in my teens and early 20s, the only place that got me was a head full of knowledge and a heart that was ice cold. It's not magic. 
Reading your Bible is not the answer in and of itself. So don't hear me saying you have to have a quiet time every day reading your Bible for at least 20 minutes and praying for at least 20 minutes in order to please God. There have been and even today are believers around the globe who are a fragrant aroma to God who are not literate, right? So just being able to read your Bible does not mean uh, is not a surefire formula for intimacy with God. But what I am saying to us in this postmodern information age where more data interp- and interpretations of data are available than we can actually even consume, take in, and process, what I'm saying is that we must make use of the means that God has given us to discern truth from falsehood. And that means his holy word. Well, there's your tale of two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. A tale of two cities that can strongly inform how we live out the gospel presence of Jesus in our own cities today. Seeking to be the Lord's presence to the people with whom we already have relationship, with whom we've already developed trust. Seeking to measure everything we take in by the revelation of God's wisdom in the scriptures. The scriptures which are, remember, all about Jesus. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. The age of wisdom, the age of foolishness. The epoch of belief, the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light and of darkness. It was the spring of hope, the winter of despair. In short, the period was so far like the present period. So far like the present period that we read of Paul and his companions and what we read still holds true for us today. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we do pray that we would be guided by your Spirit whom you promised would lead us into all truth. And as we walk in your truth, as we study your word to see what things are true, we trust, Lord, that you will continue to fit and form us to be your gospel presence. That you will continue to open our eyes to see those whom you've placed in our lives who need the touch of your compassion. Who need to know something of you, the God who loves them and laid down his very life for them. And so, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you to do that work in us and through us. And so to you we pray, our Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.